Our scripture this morning is Psalm 69. Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire where there is no foothold. I have come into deep waters and the flood sweeps over me. I am weary with my crying out. My throat is parched. My eyes grow dim with waiting for my God. More in number than the hairs of my head are those who hate me without cause. Mighty are those who would destroy me, those who attack me with lies. What I did not steal must I now restore? O God, you know my folly. The wrongs I have done are not hidden from you. Let not those who hope in you be put to shame through me, O Lord God of hosts. Let not those who seek you to be brought to dishonor through me, O God of Israel. For it is for your sake that I have, been, I have borne reproach, that dishonor has covered my face. I have become a stranger to my brothers, an alien to my mother's sons. For zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. When I wept and humbled my soul with fasting, it became my reproach. When I made sackcloth my clothing, I became a byword to them. I am the talk of those who sit in the gate, and the drunkards make songs about me. But as for me, my prayer is to you, O Lord. At an acceptable time, O God, in the abundance of your steadfast love, answer me in your saving faithfulness. Deliver me from sinking in the mire. Let me be delivered from my enemies and from the deep waters. Let not the flood sweep over me, or the deep swallow me up, or the pit close its mouth over me. Answer me, O Lord, for your steadfast love is good. According to your abundant mercy, turn to me. Hide not your face from your servant, for I am in distress. Make haste to answer me. Draw near to my soul, redeem me, ransom me because of my enemies. You know my reproach and my shame and my dishonor. My foes are all known to you. Reproaches have broken my heart so that I am in despair. I looked for pity, but there was none, and for comforters, but I found none. They gave me poison for food, and for my thirst, they gave me sour wine to drink. Let their own table before them become a snare, and when they are at peace, let it become a trap. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and make their loins tremble continually. Pour out your indignation upon them and let your burning anger overtake them. May their camp be be a desolation. Let no one dwell in their tents. For they persecute him who you have struck down and they recount the pain of those you have wounded. And to them punishment upon punishment, may they have no acquittal from you. Let them be blotted out of the book of the living. Let them not be enrolled among the righteous. But I am afflicted and in pain. Let your salvation, O God, set me on high. I will praise the name of God with a song. I will magnify him with thanksgiving. This will please the Lord more than an ox or a bull with horns and hoofs. When the humble see it, they will be glad. You who seek God, let your hearts revive. For the Lord hears the needy and does not despise his own people who are prisoners. 
Let heaven and earth praise him, the seas and everything that moves in them. For God will save Zion and build up the cities of Judah, and people shall dwell there and possess it. The offspring of his servants shall inherit it, and those who love his name shall dwell in it. This is the word of our Lord. Well, this morning we come to the last in this series on praying through the Psalms. And as we do, we come to these most difficult psalms called imprecatory psalms. Imprecatory psalms, uh, you may not be familiar with the term, uh, but these are psalms that are written that include in them a very distinct warning against anyone uh, that is an enemy of the psalmist. And so the uh, Psalms are uh, ridden with, uh, these, are, these are tough warnings. These aren't light. They are, they're tough. They, they call for death and desolation and destruction. And so I would say to you this morning that when we think of the imprecatory Psalms, we do so uh, with realizing that they, they come in a sense with warning labels, with qualifications. And this morning, uh, what I'm going to do is to give you some some qualifications. What do the warning labels on these psalms actually look like? And so this week, it just caused me to Google warning labels, all right? So I want to share some with you uh, that are quite funny. This is children's Benadryl. Um, Avoid alcohol, it says. Uh, Children's Benadryl. Be careful when driving a motor vehicle and uh, don't take it when you're pregnant, all right? Children's Benadryl. Uh, I love this one. Premium tuna, bumblebee, bumblebee tuna contains tuna. All right, just in case you didn't know, it has tuna. Or the last one uh, is really good. Danger, do not feed or molest. Gators cannot be tamed, and feeding them can result in them mistaking a hand for a handout. Really, right? These are ridiculous warning labels, uh, but with the, the imprecatory psalms are going to come some serious warning labels. There is a church, I use that uh, term in quotes because I would not consider them to be a church, that has used for their basis of hate around the country the imprecatory psalms. This church goes and they picket uh, other churches, uh, large-scale events. Uh, Their website gives you some insight into their thinking as a church, and their website is godhatesfags.com or .org. And they go and they picket uh, places around the country When you go to their website to discover their theology behind their methodology, you will discover that they often quote the imprecatory Psalms. And so they have found a way to justify their hate. So this morning's sermon comes with qualifications. I'm not going to say you should skip over them. I'm not going to say in praying through the Psalms, just kind of ignore these Psalms that are here. Yes, indeed, we ought to pray the imprecatory Psalms, but how do you do it? And what are the qualifications? Number one, admit your own faults. David is the king, and as such, he is in a terrifying position. Verses one through three describe it. 
He, do, he gives all kinds of imagery of drowning, of, 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 of sinking in the mire, of sinking in the depth. Waters have come up to his neck, deep waters, flood sweeps over. He has cried until he cannot cry anymore. He cannot stay awake waiting for God to answer. And in verse 4, we discover why. There are people who hate him without cause. He is being unfairly treated. Uh, and these aren't light words that he uses to describe these people. He, say, he says, they seek to destroy my life. They want to attack me. But verse 5 provides an interesting qualification. Oh God, you know my folly. The wrongs I have done are not hidden from you. Before David begins to pray for God to take care of those who are coming against him, he sees his own sin, his own sinfulness, and he knows that God knows him better than anyone, and God sees his sin too. Now, this whole idea then of of acknowledging our own wrong is addressed in Judges, uh, or in Matthew chapter uh, 7, verse 1. It is one of the most often misquoted, misunderstood verses of Scripture. Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Now, we read that, and then we say, well, everybody ought to be able to do anything they want. No one should judge until Jesus illustrates it. Here's what he says. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Have any of you ever had something in your eye? Yes, tiny, tiny thing hurts a whole lot, doesn't it? A speck in the eye is quite painful. Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite, notice this, first take the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Jesus is addressing the posture, the attitude that we have when we come to a situation with someone else who has sin in their lives. Acknowledge your own sinfulness first, but don't stop there. He clearly says, once you get the log out of your eye, help your brother get the speck out of his. It is our job to notice to care enough to speak and take care of the sin that might be in someone else's life. But not to do so unless we realize that in us, in us is a sinful nature. Acknowledge your own sin. Qualification number two, number one. Number two, evaluate the source of your suffering. Let not those who hope in you, God, be put to shame through me, O Lord God of hosts. Let not those who seek you be brought to dishonor through me, O God of Israel. For it is for your sake that I have borne reproach. That dishonor has covered my face. I have become a stranger to my brothers, an alien to my mother's sons. I want to say something this morning. God's causes are worth suffering for. God's causes 
are worth suffering for. Tonight, we will gather in this place with students and teachers, and as many of you who want to come will come, and we will pray and send off our students. And if you're a student in here, a college student, a high school student, a middle school student, I want to say something to you. If your faith doesn't get you in trouble, then either it doesn't exist or it is not out there near as it ought to be. If your faith does not capture the attention of others who aren't living for God, then there's not a clear enough distinction between you and them. There are some things worth suffering for. It means on the team that you play on, you won't laugh at their racist jokes. You won't find their dirty jokes funny. And when you don't, you may be laughed at. You may be derided. You may be mocked. That's worth suffering for. It really is. I know that we live in a culture that protects kids at any cost. I understand that there's been a major cultural shift. What many of you know, but some of you may not know about me, is how I grew up. I grew up in the strictest of settings. By the time I had gone to college, these are things I had never done. I had never gone to a movie theater. I had not listened to secular music. I had never worn a pair of shorts, only long pants, jeans, or otherwise. I had never been to a ball game of any kind, football, basketball, whatever it may be, never. These things I had never done. Why? Because as I grew up, those were considered to be sin. Fair and square, they were sinful. Imagine sixth grade and on, I mowed about six yards in our neighborhood with jeans on. I did. Our family went to Myrtle Beach once. I got in the ocean with jeans on. No lie. In the swimming pool at our hotel with jeans on. Yes, that's a heavy deal. No lie. And I would say to you that it isn't an exaggeration that every single week at school I was made fun of. Every week. Words. Things said. Because I was different. Because I did not act like or talk like everyone else. Now, I want to say a word to parents. And perhaps this is so countercultural today. Sometimes I think we rush in to save our kids from any kind of, of difficulty that we rear thin-skinned, emotionally weak children. 
And while there's no place for bullying, and there's no place for many of the things that happened to me, I will never forget my refusal to read a book that morally I did not agree with. And my teacher putting me out as a 10th grader in the hallway alone to read my book while the rest of the class, this happened for weeks, read that book. I sat out there. Students walked past wondering why I was reading A Tale of Two Cities and they were reading another book. Was that the right thing for the teacher to do? No. But for some reason, by the time I went to college, there had developed in me a I really don't care what you think attitude. A strength that I needed against the criticism of the day. It, it was indeed there. And so I would say that God used that in a remarkable way. Evaluate the source of your suffering then is qualification number two. Uh, Beloved, Peter says, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. You may suffer as a Christian. That is okay. That's just what I'm saying. That is okay. It's all right to suffer as a Christian. Kevin is sitting right here in front of me. Kevin Gothier owns 828 Gym right down the road. He makes people suffer every day of his life. That's his job, right? I've been in there once just to look around, not to go through the workout. But I was with Kevin, uh, the bear crawl. And Kevin stood up and he shared the gospel. I mean, here are these, I think the, the front, athletes or the elite athletes. These are the ones who are going to go through this in in a remarkable fashion. And Kevin stands up and straight shares the gospel with everyone there. That was on a Saturday. On a Monday, this email flies into me from Kevin. Why? Well, one of the runners who was there emailed him to say, great course, great setup, great organization, just applauding him on all of these things. But he said, the most difficult thing I endured was the tent revival beforehand. He said, God did not help me through that course. I made it through the course because I worked out hard. What is Kevin experiencing? Suffering for the cause of Christ. 
Peter says you can suffer for the cause of Christ or you can create your own suffering. And the list, like when it starts out, I'm pretty good with it. Let none of you suffer as a murderer, check. Thief, check. An evildoer, kind of vague. Maybe I could check that. Meddler. Peter, how did you go from murderer to gossip in one sentence? We create that. We can create suffering for ourselves. Look at verses 9 through 12. David says, For zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. When I wept and humbled my soul with fasting, it became my reproach. When I made sackcloth, sackcloth my clothing, I became a byword to them. I am the talk of those who sit in the gate, and the drunkards make songs about me. God, I'm doing your work, and people are laughing. So what is qualification number three? Appeal to God's character. All right, so acknowledge your own sin. Acknowledge your own faults. Number one, qualification. Number two, evaluate the source of your suffering. Are you creating it, or is it coming from living for the Lord? Number three, appeal to God's character. I love this, but as for me, my prayer is to you, O Lord, at an acceptable time, O God, in the abundance of your steadfast love, answer me in your saving faithfulness. Deliver me from sinking in the mire. Let me be be delivered from my enemies and from the deep waters. Let not the flood sweep over me or the deep swallow me up or the pit close its mouth over me. Answer me, O Lord, for your steadfast love is good. According to your abundant mercy, turn to me. Every imprecatory prayer must include this statement, but as for me, you're going to have to make a decision. It causes you to say, as for me. As for me, what? David is sinking. He describes it as sinking in verses 1 through 3. I'm sinking. The floodwaters are coming up over me. And while I'm sinking, God, as for me, I'm looking to you. I'm looking to you. I'm going to focus on your character. Please hear me. If you're being unfairly treated, you will drown in it if your focus is on the people who are mistreating you. If your focus is on the the unfairness that is happening in your life, you will drown in the unfairness. It is in those times that you must see God for who he is. So what does he say? God, you're abundant in steadfast love, saving faithfulness, steadfast love, abundant mercy. But herein lies the quandary with imprecatory psalms. David says, my enemies are like these floods that are drowning me. And God, I want you to remove me from my enemies. And later, I want you to decimate them. I want you to destroy them. But he says that to a God who is abundant in mercy and steadfast love. So here's the question. Can the same God who is abundant in mercy and steadfast love destroy David's enemies? Does that God live in the same, in the same person? This is the difficulty, isn't it? Well, who are you, God? Are you the God who is abundant in mercy and steadfast love, or are you the God who destroys my enemies? And the answer is, yes, he is. Both. The God who rescues also rebukes. The God who delivers also destroys. And the God who forgives also forsakes. That is the truth. Well, the context then comes to bear. David is a king. He is a king of a theocracy. God is in charge of Israel. We are a democracy, right? The people vote here. Not so. Nobody elected David. God chose him. 
He is a king, and as a king, he is praying for the protection of his kingdom. But not his kingdom, but God's kingdom with a big K. So, uh, no kings in the room today, right? We're not kings. Uh, How do we apply this? How do we pray? So, I want you to listen to me, especially you men. Listen up. This is where you as fathers and husbands have a God-given hefty responsibility to cover your wife and your children in prayer. This is where God's kingdom that he has established and working through his church and working through your family, there is no one else to stand in the gap for your wife and for your children. You are it. You are it, men. You are it. God has designed you, Ephesians 5, to protect and provide, to nourish and to cherish. That responsibility does not belong to anyone else in God's design. It is yours. It is mine. At the end of my life, when my life is assessed by God, Number one, how did I love my wife? Number two, how did I love my children? Not how much money did I put in the bank? Not, not uh, how much approval did I get from people? Not how well did I figure this out? Not what books did I write? Not how many sermons did I preach? No, at the end of my life, God will look at me and I will be accountable for the husband I was and the father I was. That's where the chips will fall. That's what matters most. And so I am required to pray in a protective way over my wife and my kids. And I have done that. I have prayed more than one imprecatory prayer for a young man who wanted more than he ever should have wanted for my daughter. I have. I have prayed more than one imprecatory prayer for would-be friends of my children. I have. Why? It is my job to stand in the gap as a husband and dad we live in a feminized culture that is feminized men taking away our responsibilities the scripture is not yet to do that and isn't going to men this is a hefty responsibility As pastor of this church, on more than one occasion, I prayed bold prayers against the enemies of your souls. I have. It's my job. Verse 6 says, Let not those who hope in you be put to shame through me. 
O Lord God of hosts. There are clear enemies of the cross, enemies of God's work in your life, enemies of God's work in my family's life. However, if I fail to consider qualification number four, then I'll go off track in a hurry. Remember Jesus' sacrifice. Look at this, verses 19 through 21. You know my reproach and my shame and my dishonor. My foes are all known to you. Reproaches have broken my heart so that I am in despair. I looked for pity, but there was none, and for comforters, but I found none. They gave me poison for food, and for my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. I teach Old Testament at Montreat, and we just talked about this. We we have a remarkable gift in the Bible. It's an amazing gift. Like If you study how it got to us, it's mind-blowing. In 300, uh, 200 B.C., somewhere in that period, a group of scholars got together, 70 of them. It's called the Septuagint for that reason. And they took the entire Old Testament and translated it into Greek. It's an amazing gift. You say, Jerry, how so? Because the New Testament was written in Greek. And it was the same Greek that, that, that was two to 300 B.C., same Greek of the New Testament, So how does it help study? Well, you could take words from that Septuagint, that Greek copy of the Old Testament, and you can compare those with words from the New. And when you do, you find parallels. It it connects the Old with the New uh, linguistically in a remarkable way. You can find parallels. And so indeed, that is what happens in Psalm 69. In Psalm 69, there are two words that show up in Matthew 27. And the two words are poison and sour wine. In Matthew 27, those two words sound like this. What's happening is that Jesus has been brutally beaten and he is taken now to the cross. And they put the beam on his back, but it was too heavy. He was just so beaten down. It was too heavy. And he couldn't carry it. And as they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man Meaning Simon didn't want to do it, to carry his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means a place of the skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall. Wine to drink mixed with gall is poison for food, sour wine to drink from Psalm 69. But when he tasted it, he would not drink it. David who is writing the psalm, who is bearing reproach, who has enemies for no reason at all, who is the king of Israel, prefigures the king of kings, who bore your reproach and mine, who for no reason at all of his own. No reason at all of his own went to the cross. Not one single solitary thought did Jesus have that merited crucifixion. Definitely not a deed. It was your thoughts and my thoughts and your deeds and my deeds. Look at this. The cross is where God's justice and man's uh, sin meet. Look at verses 7 and 8. We'll review for it is for your sake that I have borne reproach, that dishonor has covered my face. I have become a stranger to my brothers, an alien to my mother's sons. All right, so let's go to the cross now. When Jesus is hanging on the cross, his mom is there, but none of his brothers are. 
Why? They didn't believe in him yet. They did not believe. That's why from the cross he looks and asks John to take care of his mom. His brothers don't believe this was predicted right here. I become a stranger to my brothers, an alien to my mother's sons. Mercy and justice collide on the cross. Jesus lived a life we could not live, a sinless life. He died a death we should have died, a sinner's death. And he rose to give us a life we could never have otherwise, a resurrected life. This qualification is huge when I am praying these imprecatory psalms. I must remember Jesus' sacrifice. I must remember that the sour wine and the gall that was offered him was mine to drink and mine to eat. I should have taken the cross on my back. I should have gone up the hill. I should have died there. I deserved all of that because of my sin. And when someone is coming against me and when someone is my enemy, I must remember that when I was an enemy, of God through Christ I was brought near by the blood of Jesus Christ amen I who was once far off was brought near I can never forget that regardless of the worst thing anyone ever does to you or does to me it does not equal what you and I did to Christ by putting him on the cross but it doesn't negate imprecatory praying either. And so the fifth qualification is pray with cautious boldness. Here's the prayer, verses 22. Let their own table before them become a snare. Let it become a trap. Eyes be darkened. Make their loins tremble continually. Pour out your indignation upon them. Let your burning anger overtake them. May there can't be a desolation. Uh, Let no one dwell in their tents. Uh, because they persecute, add to them punishment upon punishment. Let let them be blotted out of the book of life. Let them not be enrolled among the righteous. This is hefty stuff. The judgment David calls down on his persecutors emphasizes the things that normally make life worth living, food and fellowship, a place to belong. One's faculties and strengths, the eyes, the loins. Clearance from guilt to be known and accepted by God. How can David pray these prayers? Because he is the king of God's earthly kingdom, Israel. So how should these prayers be prayed then? I think they're always prayed in a protective mode, number one. And number two, they're always prayed with God's kingdom in mind. A protective mode in the kingdom of God, both. They have to be combined. All right, so this may surprise you. So what are the enemies we pray against? We have three, and they're huge. Enemy number one is your sinful nature. You woke up with him or her this morning. You go to bed with him or her tonight. Everywhere you go, there you are, right? It's your sinful nature. Never goes away until you die and are in the presence of the Lord. You say, 
Jerry, you're, you're serious. This is really going against my idea of self-esteem. We're born with a sinful nature. Don't believe me. Have kids. Put two kids in a room and one ball, and you'll see sinful nature. Won't take long. Right? We're born in sin. David said in Psalm 51, in sin did my mother conceive me. Enemy number two, the world. So what is the world? The world rides on the waves of media these days. The ideas, the patterns, the schemes of Satan. That's the world. And then that leads to enemy number three, which is Satan himself. All right, so these are the three enemies we pray against today. The imprecatory prayers have to be against these enemies. So for, uh, for you, you first do battle with yourself, don't you? So when does a perfect storm happen when your sinful nature connects with the message of the world and Satan sees that opportunity to rush in and have a heyday with your life? heyday and you will do things you thought you would never do and go places you thought you would never go and, 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 and say things you thought you would never say I've said it many times sin will take you farther than you intended to go keep you longer than you intended to stay and cost you more than you ever intended to pay it's the danger the risk of sin so how do you pray? You pray against those enemies. You pray against them. This morning after the early service, this, this husband came up to me and said, pray for me and my wife. I've been looking at pornography. I've confessed it to her. My very next words to him were, have you shut down your phone your point of access completely, he said. No more access. It's gone. That's how you wage war. That's how you do it. Don't play around. Imprecatory prayers are for warriors. Men and women, teenagers, single adults. Well, how does David conclude the psalm? Believe it or not, after this sermon, we're going to sing a song. And you might wonder, what kind of song could you sing after an imprecatory psalm? Well, look. I am afflicted and in pain. Let your salvation, O God, set me on high. Verse 30. I will praise the name of God with a song. How could we do this psalm and not sing? David says, I will praise the name of God with a song. I will magnify him with thanksgiving. This will please the Lord more than an ox or a bull with horns and hoofs. When the humble see it, they will be glad. You who seek God, let your hearts revive. 
For the Lord hears the needy and does not despise his own people who are prisoners. Let heaven and earth praise him, the seas and everything that moves in them. For God will save Zion and build up the cities of Judah, and people shall dwell there and possess it. The offspring of his servants shall inherit it, and those who love his name shall dwell in it. David the king says, I see a day when it won't be like it is today. I see a day when I won't have to pray imprecatory prayers. It was a few years ago that I was with a group of folks in Israel. And we had just finished taking the Lord's Supper in those beautiful olive wood communion cups that they had given us while we sat and looked down on the garden tomb believed to be the place where they put Jesus when he had died. And as we're sitting there, all of a sudden I hear, we all hear behind us a language we can't understand, but a tune we do understand. Nigerians singing a song of praise in their tongue. The gentleman who was leading our time together said to us, just yesterday, 30 of their own were killed for the gospel. And in light of that, with that as a backdrop, This is the old song that they were singing. Would you stand and let's sing it together. God sent his son. Sing it out. They called him Jesus. He came to love, heal and forgive. He lived and died to buy my pardon and empty Savior lives. This is why we sing. Because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. This is our future, 
church sing it out because he lives I can face tomorrow because he lives all fear is gone because I Because he lives, because he lives, sing it out. I can face tomorrow because he, that's beautiful, sing it. All fear is gone Because I know He holds the future And life is worth the living just because he lives life is worth yes life is worth the living just because he lives oh jesus as we heard early in the testimony we we know your compassion by the cross your power by the resurrection Father, we are coming together even tonight and going to schools this afternoon to pray against the enemy and to pray for your kingdom to come and your will to be done. And we join David and others who have done so for years. Lord, the enemy is real, but you are greater still. As a matter of fact, Jesus, your own words, you said, and we cling to them, greater is he who lives in you than he who lives in the world. We cling to that promise, Jesus, from you. And we're glad that you came down and dirtied yourself by becoming one of us. And you lived a life that that you never, ever deserved to live, but you did it, but you became one of us. And now you intercede for us. We need you. We are weak and you are strong. We are helpless in your help. We are hopeless in your hope. 
We are dead in sin. You make us alive. Thank you, Jesus, that you live in us and work through us. And as such, your kingdom comes, your will is done on this earth as it is in heaven. Remind us of who our enemies aren't and who they are and how to pray boldly against them and for you. And all God's people say, Amen. Amen.